0: I grew up with stories of struggle and it's a very subtle thing, but I knew, you know, just through stories and and being told history, like, oh, you're here because you exist in Oklahoma uh, because the U.S. government made your people walk from Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, and Florida to Oklahoma and a lot of you died. And it's like, you know that's ever-present, you know? I think, like, and in indigenous storytelling, like, we we faced a lot of that struggle through humor. And so, for me, my favorite humor is the humor that butts up against tragedy.
1: That is the voice of Sterling Harjo. He is is the co-creator of a show that I love on FX called Reservation Dogs, co-created with Taika Waititi, who's brilliant also. We recorded this episode with Sterling about a year ago. Um, a lot has happened for Sterling since then. Uh, Reservation Dogs had its second season this summer, which is fantastic. They won a bunch of awards, including the Peabody and the AFI Award and the Indi- Independent Spirit Award. Like, it has really, really, really run the table. And I'm so glad that people have found this show because it's so one-of-a-kind. It's so, so funny and authentic in these ways that are just constantly surprising and so inspired. Love talking to him. I want to thank everyone who's come out to the Old Man in the Pool on Broadway. We're running at Lincoln Center at the Vivian Beaumont Theater through January fifteenth. It's a must close. So get your tickets now. Um, I keep getting these notes from people who are saying uh, Mike was right. All the seats are good. Uh, it's true. I've sat. I've sat in pretty much every seat in the house. All the seats in the loge and everything. I mean, it's just, it's an architectural marvel. So if you go on, I mean, there's tickets starting as low as like, I saw like 30, 39 bucks on today ticks. You can get them on on MikeOnBroadway.com. And if you play your cards right, there's rush tickets day of for like 40 bucks that are like front row or front few rows. It's been a blast. Like, I can't, I mean, Paul Rudd has come, Steve Martin came. Like, I mean, it's been like, such a dream come true Mulaney was there the other night uh, with Gaffigan too there's been a lot of uh, it's just been very exciting Um, I really hope you enjoy this chat with Sterling Harjo today I mean we talk about a whole range of topics American history cultural representation a sketch comedy group uh, called the 1491s that he's a part of and We share our funny stories about making kind of terrible short films when we were younger. Uh, I don't think I've ever told that story anywhere. I don't know if he has, but uh, that's really, really fun. It's like one of my favorite stories from the podcast ever. Anyone who's feeling stuck creatively right now, it's kind of a good one because we really get in the weeds on that. Uh, Similar to the Wendy McNaughton episode last week, which, by the way, if you haven't listened to the Wendy McNaughton episode and you're a creative, absolutely do that. She talks about the idea of being stuck and feeling like, you know, a perfectionist and and having that hold back process sometimes. It's a great, great talk. It's very inspiring. This one is very inspiring. And I can't wait for you to listen to my chat with the great Sterling Harjo. I sort of started digging into your feature films and your documentary. Um, mm. And uh, this may be the last time was really interesting for me because the you know this show, working it out, the premise of it is I'm working out my next show in real time. And my next show is called yep. The Old Man and The Pool. And it's all about mm. death and mortality. And this may be the last time, thematically, is almost right down the line, that, precisely that. Yeah. And it's about the musical traditions of Native people. Yeah. And, uh,
0: and, and how- And death and mortality. And death yeah. and mortality. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that like, you know, coming from Oklahoma, I mean, I'm really drawn to like Southern Gothic, right? Like, you know, uh, and, and I feel like that type of storytelling from the South and from rural areas, I mean, that's what it's concerned with, right? It's like death and mortality. Because sure. that is the, I mean, and, and honestly, that's the main thing we should all be concerned with. You sure. know, it's like, that is the thing. Right. And, you know, it's like, I, I could well, I could read a book like As I Lay Dying, every, you know, like that's that's my jam. Yeah. Like we gotta get we gotta get mom across the river. <laughs> <laughs> She's dead. And she is in a casket. You know, like for some reason it's like the cross section of spirituality, death, the unknown, and 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 also somewhere in there for me is humor. But I think like through through that, I, I think that. And this is just me trying to figure it out myself. But like Native people, Indigenous people, you know, we're here because we survived, right? Like, um, you know, I grew up with stories of struggle and I, it's a very subtle thing. But I knew, you know, just through stories and, and being told history, like, oh, you're here because you're, you're, you exist in Oklahoma uh, because the U.S. government made your people walk from Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi and Florida to Oklahoma and a lot of you died and it's like you know that's ever present you know i think like and an indigenous storytelling like we we faced a lot of that struggle through humor and so for me my favorite humor is the humor that butts up against tragedy you know it's like it's like that that humor that exists There's almost not a line between those two things, you know, and I just find that interesting. I think.
1: Yeah, I'm in this. That's how I felt when I was watching the documentary. Is is, Mm -hmm. and it, it, you know, it's worth noting that uh, the the phrase "this may be the last time" is a is a line from a a native song. Yeah. uh, That so it speaks to the idea of like this may be the last time. Uh, We don't. I think the end of the line is we don't know. Yeah,
0: we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and th- that song trails back through, you know, it's like, it was a slave spiritual song. It was also this Muskogee Creek hymn. And then it travels through where it becomes kind of a blues standard, basically. Yeah. And then the Rolling Stones have, <laughs> this could be the last time. The Staple Singers, yes. uh, I believe, had a, had, a, had a recording of it first.
1: Yeah, there's this astonishing piece of footage where you see the Rolling Stones singing it like on a talk show in the documentary. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God like yeah. the degree to which i mean like the the term cultural appropriation is is used uh, quite a bit these days but like the rolling stones clip is oh wow this is a yeah. full appropriation this is yeah. they just they just they stole the line wholesale and, yeah, and yeah. put it in their song
0: yeah stole or you know you know i i think that it's a little loose back then as far as like you know these songs that became sort of folk standards and blues standards and then it's like it was a bit of free reign, you know i think for modern artists to adapt and take some of those songs you know
1: yeah i was watching the that documentary and i was i was thinking about you work through mortality through this discussion of the tradition of songs but i think that you know that jokes are so similar and and like mm-hmm. you're saying humor is so similar is it's like How do we cope with this thing that we're all somewhat, at least somewhat terrified of and we will face eventually? And I think one of the ways
0: is song and one of them is jokes. No, I mean, I I believe that. And like, you know, humor for me, I mean, I'm such a fan of comedy, you know, like I've been such a, um, it's interesting because I get get asked a lot, I used to before Reservation Dogs came out. I was asked a lot, like, why don't you like from people back home that knew me in high school? they were like, why, why won't you make a comedy? Like, yeah. you're funny. Like, yeah. you're always cutting up. Like, you're kind of a class clown. Like, why, why are you making these sad mo- movies? Yeah, and I think you're right in that. Like, they're so connected to me. Like these, like, like, like the the. And, but then transitioning into Reservation Dogs, it was very easy because you know I, I had a there's a comedy group that I formed uh, with a few other guys called the 1491s. And it, and no one wanted to hear native comedy because no one knew what it was and no one right. gave a shit. And right. first of all, they didn't, they barely knew that we wore blue jeans and <laughs> like, you know, uh, you know, like listen to iPods. So like, um, so coming out of the gate saying like, hey, there's this form of comedy that like, I want you to get into. I think you'll be into it. Like no one is wanting to see that at first. And so they were funding dramas. Like I was getting, I was making low budget drama, dramatic films, you know? Like that's what they wanted to see. And this is out of, just to give context, this is like you were out of film school. Right. And I was out of film school. I went through the Sundance Labs. Sundance Lab, yep. Yeah. And then I came out of that and I started, I went to LA. There was a lot of things saying, people saying, I, I heard a lot of things like, you know, Native American films don't sell. Um. What, this isn't native enough? Like this is, or this is too native, or whatever. And so I really went back to Oklahoma, where I am right now, and I just started making my films and um. Uh, made them on a very micro level budget. At the same time, I started a comedy group called the Fourteen Ninety Ones because we were like, man, we, there's there's a, there's like, how do we get our humor out? Like, where is a play? There's no place for native people to go, and see. F- our humor displayed. And so we started making these videos and posting them on YouTube, you know? And they sort of took off within the the indigenous native community. And it became kind of a staple, like college kids and even like elders, everyone was watching these videos that we were putting out, you know? Wow. Um, And so, for but for me, like, I love that because it was really kind of training ground into like filming comedy for me, like- Yeah. Because it's, you know, as you know, it's like- when you're working out jokes or, or even like, you know, shooting a comedy, you, you don't shoot it exactly like a drama. Yeah. And I had only been shooting dramas. And so having this sketch group, I was able to really practice and sh- see how a joke can be shot to work. Also, like one of the things that helped me when making Reservation Dogs is learning what makes non-Native people laugh. Yeah. uh and Native people laugh at the same time. Like, how do we make everyone laugh instead of just our community and our people, you know? Yeah. And there was a bit of like inviting people into our world and letting them laugh with us. There's a little like permission you have to give them to laugh because I feel like people people hold Native people in this like really earnest place, you know? Like we're very mystical and like, you know, like we're talking to ghosts and stuff. And so like... Uh, you have to give people permission to come in and like laugh, like we're also alive. And but I and I think there's like guilt and genocide has to do with all that stuff. Of but, course. Like, yeah. um, so it was really imp- that doing that comedy sketch comedy group and filming those was really helpful in creating Reservation Dogs and just learning how a joke works. You know, um, how does a joke work on a TV show? You know, um, there's not really a school for that unless you're just doing it and fucking it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely true.
1: And like. No. And reservation dogs, I think, is hilarious, and it's the best kind of uh, comedy mixed with tragedy. Yeah. I would, I would almost compare it to like Freaks and Geeks, yeah, or totally. like Stand by Me, or, or, yeah, or yeah, like yeah. one of these shows where it's kids and they're just kids being kids, and mm-hmm. they're fucking a lot of stuff up, but also they're learning a lot, and it's like so, m- it's like all at
0: once, everything. You know, Stand by Me; those movies were were really informative to this. I mean even like Rumble Fish and the Outsiders, you know, sure. where it's like um these, you know, which were shot here in Tulsa and so like it's kind of a part of your your mem- your memory as a child growing up. But like, you know, I love I love uh, movies or shows where kids aren't being quirky adults, you know, like, like they're being kids, sure, but also faced with real shit and drama, you know, and, and there's humor and there's your world and there's your point of view, but it's like, how do they handle that drama through their point of view? You know, it's different than I think adults. So I, I don't know, like that was sort of the goal with Reservation Dogs.
1: Yeah. It's interesting with, you were saying like, you know, you're, you're trying to find with native comedy, you know, where are you letting people come in to your culture? And yeah. then where are you sort of uh, showing them something that's outside of their experience? Because the, right. it, the way I always think of jokes is you have your setup, which is something we always we all agree to be true. And right. you have your punchline, uh, which is a, sort of a right turn from that truth. And then I always think of tags as being sort of like, once you're in that punchline universe here's some digressions of yeah. what what else could be true if this is true what else right. is true and so right. the, the the mathematics of jokes are like that i think that one of the things that must be a challenge with native comedy is that the Ameri- just the american experience uh, alone in terms of understanding native history is all over the map yeah man. and so you're 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 set up uh is not necessarily agreed upon. Right. right. You know what I mean? There's, there are people who go like, well, the native, it wasn't a genocide. Right, it right, was right. disease or whatever. And you go right. like, no, 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 uh, that it was a genocide. You yeah. know what I mean? Like there, there's, there's a lot of disparity if you dig into the different people telling the histories yeah. what the history is. And so then you have to deal with that from a joke perspective, I feel like.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so many like books that come out that are like, oh, actually the Comanche were, you know, like brutal people. You know, it's like. Well, sure, they were brutal. They were like running for their homes and their lives, right? Like, if you're taking them into context from this moment that you're talking about, of course you could read it that way. Yeah. You know? Or it's like there's a lot of revisionist history. I feel like you know, and um, and no one does agree about our history. I mean, like, I mean, it's depressing talking about. It. You know, it's yeah, like, of course, uh, yeah. You know, it's like, and 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 I think growing up, it's like you watch movies where your people are represented as the the zombies, right? And like the bad guys. And so all of that, there's a lot of baggage that comes into, all right, let's go make them laugh. Indian jokes. Sure. Like, let's go. (laughs) Sure. And so, and I do think that um, one of the things that we did with Reservation Dogs was kind of acknowledge that and... We had to acknowledge, like, if I said to your audience or whoever, 90% of the people in the world, if I said, like, draw me a Native American person, like, it would be a person in buckskin on a horse with long hair, mm-hmm. uh, with some beads on and, and, and like a choker, whatever, you know, like, that would be the classic vision of what Native people are. and. Reservation Dogs acknowledges that, and there's this character who's yes, played by Dallas. very funny. Who's played, yeah, he's played by <laughs> Dallas Goldtooth, who was one of the founding members of the comedy group. Yeah, 1491, um, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, it's like, we have to acknowledge this, yeah. because it's gonna be like the elephant in the room that doesn't get acknowledged if we just try to go through and like, oh, we don't think about any of that stuff. When in, when in reality, we do. And so it was like, all right, here is this guy, and this is what you think we look like. And we just did a setup of this whole show to this point where you're seeing like kids stealing a chip truck, the Stooges are yep. playing, I want to be your dog. Like it's kind of <laughs> punk rock. Uh, And then all of a sudden this character drops in. Yes. Sort of a spirit guide. And like, and he talks in his like poetic thing, you know? and like. But I think that like you're saying, you know, our setup, a native, like there is no, there, it's hard to set that up. So it was like, drop them into this world, make them feel like, Make them drowned a little bit. Yeah. they don't know where they're at. They don't know what the hell's going on. This is very different. But then bring this character in. Yeah, to ground to ground everyone, but also invite them in to laugh at this stereotype that we all agree is like the sort of image of what has been put upon us. Yeah, um, and there's some truth in that image as well, right? Like we did at one point dress like that, um, and you know we 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 did ride horses. And there's a lot of truths in that stereotype, but like isn't it ridiculous that you think that that's what we are now to this day? <laughs> right, yeah. And I think that also helped bring in the audience and give them permission to laugh and kind of be like, oh, I get where we're at now, you know?
1: Yeah, I think that one of the things that I like most about the series, and, and, and I'm a big cinephile, so like more yeah. often than Same, not, yeah. I actually like, I'll usually see a TV series and I'll go, I wish they had just made a film of this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's like exactly. my dirty little secret about a lot of <laughs> yeah, shows. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah. and with your series, I'm like, I'm so glad they made this a series, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because it merits, you know, going down the rabbit hole of each of these characters. I mean, I, I felt that way about a series I was on as an actor, Orange is the New Black, where, yes. where I was like, oh, Genji did this really smart thing where she presented this world— and then she's decided, okay, I'm going to go down the rabbit hole of Crazy Eyes. I'm going to go down the rabbit hole of, you know, the uh, yeah. you know, the the warden character, et cetera. And we're going to understand in sort of a holistic sense, like, what, what the human experience is through that. And I feel like that's right. what I like most about your show is that every episode, I feel like I'm understanding these characters and completely uh, different way. And I'm, it, you know, the most exciting thing for me is I'm seeing myself in it, uh, right. which I think is the goal of sort of all
0: great storytelling is that you you see right. some part of yourself in the story. Exactly. And, you know, I think that, you know, when I watched the um, British office the first time, right, I did not know that world, you know, and yeah. it took me a couple of episodes to... Get into the rhythm of that humor, yeah. and the accents, and know kind of some of the slang, yeah. And but once I was in, I was so in. Like I was like, I mean, I watched that shit like twice a year, you know, the whole thing, and like, <laughs> wow, and like, I, I was just so invested, and and I think that part of that, and in, in Origin is the New Black, is a example of that, and. You know, in this show, we have to create this. It's not just uh, the world of the show. It's also like re- redefining Native experience yes. and kind of showing and showing the reality of that and what it's like in a community, which nothing has done really, you know? Like there's a new show that came out called Rutherford Falls that does that well, but like nothing before that has done that. And it was like, because we had to feed into the lie a little bit, I think, you know, because no one wanted to see a show about kids hanging out, stealing and shit. Like, what are you talking about? Right. You know, there's just no context for all that stuff. And so building that world out, like it's, it's so much bigger too. I mean, we started so narrow and it's yeah. like, I th- feel like we have to slowly kind of build that. Um, but like one of, the, one of the things that I think, you know, speaking of the office is like, I didn't want to explain or handhold anyone coming into this world. Like, I just want to drop you in yeah. and hope, Hopefully, you come on board and get invested enough but like once you're in this world that you don't recognize then you connect with the human aspects of yeah. these characters. Everyone knows what it's like to want to leave. Everyone knows what it's like to lose somebody. Yeah. Um and but I think that if you're I think that if you are are um trusting of an audience i think that if you respect an audience enough to just come on board yeah. and let them lean in and do some of the work i think they they in, i think they invest even deeper into a story just like the english office with me i invested so much in that because they didn't hold my hand they just like threw me into this yeah. like world that i had no idea what it was and i had to figure it out um And once you get them in there, you know, you have stories of love. You have stories of loss. You have all these things that kind of hold people there and kind of keep them coming back, which is the hope, you know. Um, And I say all this, like, totally out of my ass because I've never made a show before. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just like, just trying to figure it out. And this is what I think is happening. I don't know, you know.
1: My wife, Jen, and I watched all your features your documentary yeah. uh you know all the episodes of reservation dogs and i think what was startling to us was that you made your first feature i want to say it came out in 2007
0: yeah i made it when I, in like 2006 or something i think
1: yeah and yeah. And, it, and it and it was it's phenomenally good thank you uh, and it's and it's also funny. I mean, you're saying it's so dramatic, yeah. but it, yeah, it no, is dramatic. Yeah, it, it starts yeah, yeah. with a, it starts with a suicide and yeah. and works from there, but there's so much humor in it. Yeah. And to me it's astonishing when I watch it, I go, how did Sterling not get approached to make a series in 2007 yeah. or 2006, yeah. you know, with this level of talent and mm. I think that there's a there's sort of a a sad part about that and there's a sort of a positive part of that. The sad part is how come that didn't happen. The positive part is it actually seems like at least uh, in fits and spurts uh people are starting to take representation in film and TV more seriously now yeah. in 2021 than
0: they were in 2007. Oh man, like it was totally different world I mean like I said when I first went out to LA I mean I mean I literally thought I was gonna be the toast of the town because I came out to the labs and it was like ah <laughs> oh, Tarantino and like all this stuff yeah, so yeah. I was like ah oh, doors are gonna be flying open you know did you and have Tarantino did. at your lab Sundance lab no 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 he wasn't there but it was oh. like uh, he had been there as a, you know it was like yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. people that came out of there you know yeah so
1: just so people know Res- uh, Reservoir Dogs was developed I think in the Sundance yeah, lab in the 90s. 90s yeah yeah
0: yeah, yeah exactly yeah. in the 90s I was there with like Miranda Lie uh, um mm-hmm. folks like that. Oh my and, um, gosh Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so um, you know, I thought, like, oh, I'm gonna be making a feature, like, this is gonna be great. Um, no one really wanted to make it because it, <laughs> it was all about like who, name actors back then, you know. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah can sure. you get There was no streaming. Like there yeah, was yeah. no, you know, yeah. And so I sort of, you know, tucked tail and went back to Oklahoma going, like, they don't want to make this shit. Like, um, the talk of representation and diversity was not there, you know, like that was not a thing then, but I always knew like, all I have to do is go home, keep making these films. And eventually the industry will turn around, right? Like it will, it will change. And it was a gamble. And I was going from project to project and directing whatever I could in between short documentaries, whatever, just to make money. Um, and it did pay off, you know, like the industry did change. Um, and all of a sudden you didn't have to have name actors in your yeah. show or in your film and streaming became easier. And then all of a sudden I was, all of my work became TV after that. Cause feature film still has these rules or whatever, but like I started working in TV and none of that really mattered. And they sort of seemed to embrace stories that you hadn't heard before. And, and then I was like, oh, I can do something, you know? And then of course, Taika, being friends with Taika helps a lot, obviously. Yeah. Um, and you know, and we we've been friends for a long time, and I watched him sort of explode into the star that he is, you know, which is strange to watch as a friend, yes, you know. Sure. Um, and I've, I've you witnessed know, and, that a few times. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and this show wouldn't have happened without him, so you know. Yeah. Um, hats off to Taika.
1: Yeah, it's um, it, it's interesting because in terms of representation, like I, I feel like culturally people are just coming around to this idea of. What you see on the screen not only is empowering for young Native kids seeing themselves yeah, reflected right. back on the screen. Obviously, that's infinitely powerful. But it's also just powerful for people like me, people right. knowing and understanding more about native communities in Oklahoma. Right. And going, I should know more about this. Like right. I from your show, I ended up reading, you know, the indigenous history of the United States right. this week. And for me, it was so oh, yeah. eye-opening um, in terms of when I— <laughs> Here's how I describe I grew up in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts, and we did hit, uh, U.S. history in seventh grade. Right. And, and I remember, you know, all the stuff about Manifest Destiny and all these yeah. things, and, and, you know, Andrew Jackson and— uh, He's a nice guy. All of <laughs>
0: is he nice? I'd heard <laughs> no, he's not. No, no, he, if,
1: no, no. Honestly, if you know him, he's nice. Yeah, he's yeah, totally, yeah totally. He's yeah, a yeah. good. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. Well,
0: it's like my my tribes specifically are the ones that he really went after. Like we were in battle with that guy. Like literally, he's shooting cannons at us and shit before we left to go to Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah,
1: he's uh, he's a rough one. He's the great villain of right. of American history. <laughs> right. But uh, but uh, but if you know him, if you dude dude, if you know him, <laughs> yeah.
0: Such yeah. a good guy. Yeah, just a nice fella. <laughs> He's uh great sense of humor. Loves tea. Loves tea, you know. Loves tea. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> but, uh,
1: No, but I feel like in seventh grade I learned US history, and I I even then had this distinct sense of like, this doesn't add up.
0: Yeah. Totally. And and it's like and, one uh, paragraph. It's like one chapter, half a chapter, maybe. For sure. Yeah, yeah. For sure.
1: And actually, I found it disenchanting about studying history in general right and and it's only like you know in my 30s and 40s becoming a professional storyteller going like oh I'm actually really interested in history now right because I'm looking through through the lens of like oh here's the indigenous lens right of U.S. history and then here's the U.S. lens of American history and I go oh, okay well now I can sort of decide what what seems to what seems to add up and what doesn't.
0: Right. I mean, like, you know, it was similar for me. I mean, even though I'm I'm native, uh, I remember, you know, I'd always heard about the Trail of Tears and all this stuff, but like uh you don't really put it into context until I remember I was in college freshman year and I had a professor that was taught that, you know, it was a really in-depth history uh and he, his focus primarily was kind of indigenous history, it just happened to be that way. And he's talking about this stuff. And I'm like, all of a sudden, someone else is telling me out of the context of me being home. And I'm realizing like everyone I grew up with was affected by these events that he's talking about, you know? And I, it took me to leave to really realize and look back at my home and go, whoa, like we weren't originally from there. Like we got displaced there, you know? Like that's that's crazy and like heavy. Um, and then I think about like, I mean throughout every every year every couple of months it seems like there's a new story comes out that's like hey you know how we thought the indigenous people didn't know what they were doing turns out they were really good at building these mounds and they were good for the earth and like sure. you know like like they they were actually really good at irrigation and like it was very sustainable right. the way that they were living you know and like and i even look at these old um these old sort of illustrations of these like French priests or whatever that came over in like the 1500s. And like, they're, they're, they're drawing people that my people are descendant of, you know, and it's like, they're totally getting things wrong. Cause there's things that they're drawing or capturing, whether it's ceremony or something that still goes on to this day, but it isn't like You know, there's not a reality show about it, right? Like it's very, very private. But they're drawing it back in the 1500s, and their interpretation of it is totally. Off, like to them, it was savagery or it was something, sure, something like you know, these heathens or whatever, you know, but it was unfamiliar to them, right? And so it was right. just an other, so they sort of demonized it, you know. And, and sure. like, but as a person that grew up in that community and knows what it is, it's like, oh no, I know what they're doing, like they're just yeah. you know, cleansing themselves right now, or whatever, you know, uh really right. interesting history, and who tells it, you know,
1: yeah. And it's interesting because the comedy uh, on reservation dogs is so funny. And it's so patient.
0: Yeah. I feel like your
1: aesthetic as a director is is just patience.
0: Yeah. No, I think that that's true. Um, you know, I'm a fan of like 70s cinema. I mean, Hal Ashby. And, yeah. you know, it's like being there. And Tyke and I talk a lot about that stuff. You know, like um, I love and I think being there is a very patient film, right? And it's like you really got to be. And you you really gotta sit that one through to get the jokes, you know, and like to to uh, to hit the humor. And I think and, he, and Harold and Maud's very similar, you know, where it's like Harold and Maud, sure, yeah. yeah. And, um, so you know that type of storytelling. I don't know. It's what I it's what I gravitate towards, but it's also native, you know. It's also native humor, and I think that um, when, you know, sitting around like talking to my this is it sounds cheesy, but it's like talking to my elders which like just like talking about my aunts and uncles like in the kitchen like I always love the stories that they told because they um they they were always so small in what happened but the way that they told them there was so much meaning in them and they were so big and like I love that and that's what I want with reservation dogs is like there's not a lot going on like if you really put it on paper you know <laughs> yes. but there is a lot going on Listen to the Bill Hader episode recently. Tulsa, my Tulsa buddy. Fellow Tulsa. Oh, my gosh. O- I mean, Oklahoma. Yeah,
1: man. First of all, you got a lot of talent out of there.
0: Yeah, there's, yeah, there's some there's some good talent you, that came out of
1: here. You got you, you got Bill Hader, you got Chuck Norris. That's right, Chuck Norris. Is he from here? You got the Brad Flaming Pitt, Lips. Brad Pitt, Flaming Brad Pitt, Lips. Yeah. Garth
0: Brooks. Uh, there's more, a lot. Reba McIntyre. We should just start running yeah. out of names.
1: Well, <laughs> well, there's a lot. And then, and then also, like... It's like, what the hell's going on in Oklahoma where, you know, a lot of the stuff that you document in your documentary took place with natives and then the Tulsa massacre. Exactly. Horrific.
0: There's such a loaded history in the state. Yeah, it's like, um, well, it was a place that was a bit lawless for a while. And I think it attracted uh, like people that were trying to take advantage of black folks and also native people. And I mean, if you look at like, the, um, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon right now, that's that's uh, the Scorsese film that's about the Osage yes. oil murders. Um, that was happening at a time when also the race massacre was happening, you know? So it was like wow. all of these things. And, and, you know, there were similar things happening down where I'm from, where um, which is south of there and south of Tulsa there were things like that happening all over Oklahoma because it was a very new state and it was, it was Indian territory. And there were things yeah. that you could take advantage of. And, um, and, you know, specifically from the native perspective, I mean, like my, I had a white grandma, white aunt that um, you see in the documentary, but um, my aunt was a notary, like she could notarize things. And she was the only one in town that could. And there would be real estate men banging on her door at like three in the morning she told me this and three in the morning yeah. she was born in like 1911 she she had um they would uh bang on her door at three in the morning and they had took a native local native man out and went on a bender and you know got him way more drunk and came there to buy his land and she had grown up with the native man right um <laughs> but they were known to kill people. And so she would have to notarize it, you know, and sell it for way cheap. And there were no. like, there were stories like that, you know, from home that were like, you know, lots of like um, people murdered or like land deeds signed over with just an X. So like, you don't know who signed it or whatever, you know, like wow. the records back home are really crazy. Like the the land records, a lot of corruption going on, but it was because it was such a young state. And I think that also led to um, creative people as well, you know, like. Woody Guthrie came out of Oklahoma, you know, and even like Wanda Jackson, you know. And I think that there was a lot of uh cultural diversity and and um things that led to some good art.
1: One of the really moving parts of your documentary is when the the gentleman who uh, served in the Vietnam War,
0: right, Would Go Long.
1: Yeah, he um he talks about forgiveness yeah. and uh and 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 forgiving the forgiving himself for things he's done wrong forgiving the you know the country yeah. but it's sort of like i've that's a hard that's a hard uh pill to swallow i feel like mm-hmm. is this idea of you know he's forgiving the country for you know uh, arguably unforgivable acts against his people. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that um, I think that there has to be a way moving forward. Right. And I think that if you don't have, I mean, I think that's what we're all sort of pushing towards, right. It's like some sort of forgiveness and some sort of like redemption and some sort of like, um, I mean, we all come from, most of us come from people that were oppressed or in one way or another kicked around. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's just sort of human existence as we butt up against each other. And, you know, and I think that, you know, I think that through forgiveness and things like that, you have to learn, you know, you learn how to be better human beings. And that's all we can do, you know? And I think that, um, you know, for me, I've learned more and more. And I, you know, I, I I think that comedy, honestly, the more I've moved through any types of work that I've done... I think that comedy is the most sort of... A, it like explains the world best to me. Like, yeah. like like I feel like comedians have their finger on the pulse of what's happening in society better than anyone, you know? And I think that part of that is being able to look at the situation and really look at it from every angle and make a joke out of it. I think that that makes you... a smarter human being, honestly, to, to be able to yeah. look at something from all sides, you know? And I think yeah. that when we approach humor or jokes or whatever, you know, and, or or just life situations, just like what he was saying about forgiveness, you know, it's like- um, at a certain point, you look at these situations, and you have to you have to find forgiveness, or else you'll drive yourself crazy. And it doesn't it doesn't forgive anything that anyone's ever done. Um, but you have to be able to sort of move forward, I think, with yourself and also with your people. And um, you know, uh, like I don't know, like I've you know, I have children, and it's like, what are they? What do I want to leave them? Yeah, like I want to leave them a world where. People understand better the people that they come from, right? Like I want them to be able to go into a place where it's like all white people. And when they find out they're Native American, they feel like they have an understanding of my kids because of something like reservation dogs. I went to I I went to a store in Nebraska one time and it was uh, you know, it was on the edge of a reservation. It was in a border town, it was all white town. And I walked into that store and it was like a record scratch, you know, And everyone turned and looked at me. And I never felt that because in Oklahoma, our communities are very mixed and it's not as like separate. There's not closed borders. Um, And and I remember feeling that and just going like, man, like I don't ever want my kids to feel that, right? Like I would never want my kids to feel that. Um, And I think that work like Reservation Dogs and other work that's coming out will only help that.
1: Um, so this is, a, this is called The Slow round. It's just like a series of sort of questions about your memories and things like that. Do you have a, a smell memory from childhood, either really good or really bad?
0: Yes. I have, you know, I, I, I think of, I used to go to my grandma's house. We used to go out and we'd run around the dirt road and the neighbor farmer, we just thought it was her land, but it was probably his land. Um, the neighbor farmer's um, cows would shit everywhere and yeah we had this thing where we would pick we, we would see who could throw a dried up shit the farthest you know and it was like <laughs> I, th- I think they call it like a I uh i forget what they call it, a cow patty toss is what they call it and my uncle would make us do it and like <laughs> and the smell of cow shit and the beautiful sort of prairie <laughs> and like all of those mixed together for some reason is like childhood to me you know it's like a summer sure. a summer breeze sure. uh like, sure. like everything in bloom and then cow shit yeah. just to cut through it all you know like yeah. to me, it's like yeah. that's home <laughs> yeah
1: it's amazing yeah. When, when terrible smells become yeah. beautifully nostalgic <laughs> yeah yeah. Mm. yeah do you have um memory of like a, like a particularly strange neighbor, someone you grew up nearby or a family friend who was odd.
0: There was a man that lived across the street from my aunt and I was at her house a lot. And his name was old man Mead. That's what they called him, Old Man Mead. And he would come over and he chain smoked and he had really long uh, fingernails. He's an old white man, yeah. really long fingernails and like cigarette stains on his fingers. And uh, he would uh, come over and he smelled like cigarettes. You know, like he just smelled like cigarettes. He would come over and not say anything. Like he would just sit there and I'd be in the front room and he would sit there and look out the door while my aunt and them sat around watching like, uh, you know, country music channel or something. And every now and then, my aunt would ask a question like, weather's crazy, huh? I'd go, yep. Like, that's it. <laughs> like, that's it. And he just did that for like a couple hours, once a week.
1: <laughs> yep. That's, a, that's so funny. Jim Gaffigan was saying something similar, which is that his nostalgic smell is cigarette smoke. Oh, because yeah. Because you don't smell it anymore right. out in the wild. Right. You don't. His growing... Yeah. yeah. You don't smell it anymore. No, you either smoke or you don't smoke. Right. But if you don't smoke, it ain't around.
0: Right. No, it definitely reminds me of childhood. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, totally. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Same. Do you, uh, do you have a memory on a loop from childhood where it's not a story, but it's just something that, uh, that hits you sometimes?
0: Yeah, I mean, I um, I remember walking I used to always walk everywhere I went. I kind of thought I was like stand by me, like I was a kid, that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I used to walk everywhere, and there was this one alley that's in downtown Holdenville, the town that I'm from. And I used to walk in that alley and pretend that I was in like New York City from the movies that I'd seen or something. And just waiting on like a fight to break out, you know, like some drama to happen. Uh, Nothing ever happened, you know, but like, because they were all like abandoned buildings, but it felt like I was in the city. And I always used to take that route when I would walk around. Do you remember
1: being when you were younger, just like an inauthentic version of yourself, like in middle school or high school, where you're just sort of finding yourself and it's not who you end up being?
0: For sure. I mean, like, I remember once I'm Corey Haim. <laughs> I used to love the movie, The Lost Boys. And my mom was like, oh, you, you like his hair? Because I was talking about how cool his hair was. I was like, but my hair's straight. It could never do that, you know? And I remember just like, um, get my mom was a hairdresser and she gave me, so like, let's just put a wave in your hair. And like, she literally like put a wave in my hair, like, like some, oh, a bit of a perm. And it was to- totally ridiculous. And it was just because I was a fan of the Lost Boys.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah. What's the best
0: piece of advice that you've been given that you used? I used to this day from my art teacher from high school. Um, he said, uh, whatever you do, don't have a fallback plan because you'll fall back. And... I use that because I just never, I always moved forward. I never, and I never had a plan as a backup. And I just knew that I was going to do this and I just never stopped and it really paid off. Yeah, that's, I think
1: that's a really good piece of advice. You know, I was listening to you in another interview, talk about how in college you made a short film and it was sort of like, so messy that you
0: were like oh i don't really want to show that to oh people. yeah it was a feature film and it was awful it was really bad i even like had to play a character myself and i wore a fake beard that i thought looked good <laughs> i looked back i looked back there was one part where uh there was a character the main character <laughs> the main character was a hitchhiking and yeah he got in the car in yeah. this truck. And I was like, how do we cause we don't the, the truck was too small for our gear or anyone to fit in there? So I was like, How do we do this? And my camera guy was like, Oh, you just gotta shake the car and have the camera locked on to the front and it'll look like they're driving. Right. You know, I didn't even think about, like, shadows and light, you know? Right, 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 So, literally, we shoot this whole talking scene where we're just shaking the car, and then I look at the footage, and I die laughing later because the camera was too wide, and you could see the dirt road around it just (laughs) not moving. (laughs) No shadows going. It was ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It was awful.
1: Oh, that's so funny. I have a similar thing. When I was in college... uh, it's funny, my, he went on to be a successful film producer. My, a guy in my screenwriting class, Jordan Goldberg, he said to me in class, he goes like, you know, you should just shoot one of these scripts you're writing. You should go... Yeah you know, go out and shoot it on a, a dv camera yeah. which is what you shot yours on exactly. we're like almost we're almost exactly the same yeah. age so the technology was in that same place which is like these little mini dv cassettes right tapes and and like rentable equipment where you could rent like for a weekend package you could maybe get away with like a $1000 for 1200 $1, bucks right. for a weekend package right and it was this is a this is a short I did called waiting to be great and mm-hmm. it was about these kids being scammed by like a modeling scam at like the mall, yeah, and all this stuff, and it was a debacle. We got into the, I mean, we and we filmed like guerrilla style, like in the mall in Virginia, like totally right. illegally, right. And we're stealing stealing footage like crazy. We got in the edit, and it was so bad that. The editor, who was a professional editor in New York, who we had convinced to edit this, didn't call us back.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> and he kept he kept the footage. Oh, no. He's just like, I'm not letting this out. <laughs> yeah, he just kept it. Yeah.
1: He didn't call us back. And then my sister Gina, like, literally knocked on his door and was like— Give my brother back his footage, yeah. and then like he sent it back in the mail, and like we edited some version of it together. But oh, it so, something no. about it that was so embarrassing. Yeah, because the first time people should know when they listen to this, it's like you know, Sterling uh, has made all these films and the TV series, and I've made a bunch of films and shows. Uh, uh, the first, your first stab
0: at things are is not gonna go as well as you imagine in your head. Oh man, it's awful. Like because you have these ideas of what you want it to be. And I really thought like, I was watching this like epic cinema, you know? And like, I was trying to do <laughs> that. Course. I was trying to do that on a DV cam. And it was like- <laughs> Yeah, dude, yeah, of course. Every cliche you could think of was thrown sure. at the wall. And um, I mean, the first time I ever got hired to do anything, I, I was hired to film a wedding. It was the first time I ever got paid. I got paid $150 to film a wedding. I filmed the whole wedding and the reception and also the photos that were taken. And then- I had submitted this script to the Sundance Labs. I needed a scene to show them of something that I shot and directed to send to them to try to get in the labs. I quickly went and shot this scene with my friends outside on the porch. It was an awful, pretentious college short. And get home, realize that I taped over the whole wedding. And I'd already got paid for the wedding. No. And so way. It, I start recording over the tape when it comes no. to the, the father no. brings her out. Yeah. The father brings her out. I was like, It's like the music starts. It starts recording. It comes back onto the wedding when they say, I now pronounce you man and wife.
1: No. I no. recorded
0: over the whole thing. And I was so embarrassed. I hadn't edited no. I hadn't ingested the footage. This so kills me. I, so I sent it back to them with a check for $150. And I said, I'm really sorry. And I made a video, a DVD of just a montage of them dancing and hugging and taking photos with like music over it <laughs> oh, it was awful it was awful <laughs> so bad oh, the montage hopefully they, they like reservation dogs hopefully they're watching the show now
1: but it's it's interesting because it's like you and i have that similar origin story where we just went off of the camera right. and shot some stuff and it was a debacle right it's like what would you what advice would you give for for students like studying film in high school, college
0: right now. I mean, that's honestly the advice I would give them is go make stuff. Just make it. Yeah, because you got to get those bad ones out and you got to get those bad scripts out. And your first scripts are going to be bad. I look back at my first scripts and it's like, they're so pretentious. I mean, like, you know, just graduated high school. Like one kid,s were eating Bound for Glory, and they yeah. need to, they want to go. Him and his cousin want to hitchhike and go see the home of Woody Guthrie, which is literally thirty minutes away from where they live. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, to yeah. me, it's I like, was my... making, to me, I was making the Great American Story. You know, and it was sure. like, And and I look back at it now and I cringe. And and I literally named it, you know, you know the movie Ordinary People the Redford. Sure. I named mine ordinary folks. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to get the bad ones out, you know, like I think you got to go through those. Ordinary folks. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Ordinary folks. Man. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah.
0: I thought that was going to be a
1: hit. Do you, um, this is one that Anne Lamott has, has this great book about writing called Bird by Bird. And, and she asks people to describe a school lunch that they remember eating when right. they were a kid. Do you remember one?
0: Yeah. I mean, um, Salisbury steak was always the one that we were like, oh, that's the jam. Like whenever because we went through the, we went through this <laughs> period, I think, at my school where like we would always like bring our lunch, but then it yeah. got really hip for us to eat the cafeteria, like all the, like, it was like all the cool kids started going like, nah, man, we're going to eat that cafeteria lunch. And so we started eating the cafeteria lunch. And I remember it first started with Salisbury steak day. We would go back to Salisbury steak, which like now, like I think of that and it's like, that was the worst piece of meat. I mean, it couldn't, (laughs) it couldn't have been meat, you know? Uh, And it's like, uh, no telling what that was made out of, but I remember the Salisbury steak. Oh
1: my gosh, the <laughs> thing, that the, thing, the reservation dogs recurring thing
0: that yeah.
1: always kind of grosses me out, but maybe it's awesome, is like the backstrap from the deer. Oh yeah,
0: it's the best, yeah. Is yeah, it it's good? Like the, it's really good, yeah. It's like where the, it's where the like uh, tinderloin, like the steaks come from, you know, like you can,
1: it's oh my the God. best part.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the kids talk about it. You know, like yeah. well, like, you know, like it's pizza. Well, like you know, I think in, in places in America and the cultures where there's a lot of hunting, it's kind of a joke because everyone. Oh, the first thing you always mention is backstrap. Like that's because, like, oh, real? Because they don't know exactly how to cook the other parts. It's the easy part to cook. Oh and you hear these people, they're like, okay, okay. yeah, all I take is the backstrap. You know, and it's like that's because they they don't know anything else. That's really funny. This is revealing so
1: much about me. <laughs> To, yeah. to all of my hunt to all, to all hunting my hunting yeah yeah. yeah yeah what is it, you know, so when you were hunting you were hunting grown up yeah what was your biggest hunting mistake
0: I think always the biggest mistake is no no patience. And, you know, you're just <laughs> sitting there for like an hour and like you're hungry. And you're like, oh, let's get out of here. Like there's nothing gonna show up. And then all of a sudden a deer shows up and you scare it away, you yeah. know? Like that was, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. always the biggest mistake. um It's like, you just have no patience and you just want to get out of there. Do you think you learn patience from hunting for, in your filmmaking? Yeah, I mean, like you, I think like, you know, my dad always said like, hunting isn't about killing the animal. yeah It's about- being in the woods by yourself oh. and and the, the the animals and the meat is the bonus, but like, that's not what it's about. And it really is. I think it's a very cathartic sort of meditative experience where you sit in the woods and you think about yourself and your issues and your day and, and what's coming and all of that. And I think, you know, it can be, uh, it can be full of anxiety while you're sitting out there, you know, because you're really processing all this stuff. Um, And usually by the end of that, though, you feel better. You know, and I think that there's something cathartic about it.
1: So here's, so I work out material. This is, to be clear... Um, this part of the show is just working out material for my next show. And, and it, you know, if, if it, may, it reminds you of anything, we can tell a story. If, if you have a, uh, you know, a tag for it, if you want to riff on it, great. If not, we can move to, move to the next one. This is, uh, I know I'm getting older because when I get on the exercise machine, it asks me how old I am, and I always have to press up. <laughs> yeah, it, that's great. And it asks how long I want to exercise, and I always press down. <laughs> And and it asks me my weight and I start to
0: cry. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, it's always tough getting on that machine and really just kind of, uh, you know, it makes you, it's like there's too much self-evaluation going on in that moment. I know. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't want to think there's about all this lot. stuff. Like I'm here to fix this, you know, like yeah. I'm, here, I'm here to be younger and live longer. I'm also here to lose weight yeah. Uh I'm also here to, you know, and, and I also don't want to kill myself. Like there is a middle ground. Yeah. It should just say like small, medium, large, or like, you know, like, <laughs> you know, there should just be three choices. And like, yeah, yeah. do you fit in this category, this category, right. that category?
1: Yeah. Right. We don't get have to get all deep into the measure. <laughs> yeah, come on. It's too yeah. much nuance.
0: Too much nuance. <laughs>
1: You don't need to stuff me in your algorithm. Let's just do a
0: little jog. Right. And we don't have to talk about it too much. Life insurance companies are probably taking note and all of that. Oh, yeah, exactly.
1: This is um, the... um, I feel like middle age is tough to swallow. Yeah, I know you're 41. I'm 43. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it's kind of like my life is a football game, and this is halftime. But you don't get to take a break at halftime. They just add players to the game. Like I've got a kid. And then in the second half, you're thinking this
0: might go to sudden death. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the worst? Like, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like, it doesn't feel like that was thought out. It's like, God didn't think that one out too much. It's like, couldn't we just yeah. like, couldn't it be easier as we go? Like, yeah, it's easy when yes. you're taken care of by your parents, right? Like, you're like, oh, you get everything done for you. And then there comes a certain point where it's like, oh, I have to deal with all of this, and there's no one here to help me. It's rough.
1: Oh, completely. That's why you shouldn't do drugs when you're young. You should save it for what you are Oh, yeah, exactly. Elderly, yeah, yeah, you're totally. older. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I fucked that up. <laughs> <laughs> Just save your body. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, exactly. So I went to a nutritionist because that my weight has fluctuated in the last couple of years. But um, I went to a nutritionist, and uh, turns out they know the same stuff as us. Um, It's like, like, what's the training on that job? Three (laughs) days. I mean, it's like an annoying friend who charges you. Yeah,
0: exactly.
1: But then she goes, uh, you know, because I have a lot of pre-existing conditions, which I call. conditions (laughs) conditions because <laughs> everything is is existing yeah. if it exists and everything's right. pre un- unless it happened just now right and uh and <laughs> and uh so i had a lot of pre-existing conditions <clears throat> Some telling her i had cancer when i was 20 and I, right you know i had a bladder tumor and uh and you know, i have i was diagnosed with type type 2 diabetes no i've had a, like a lot, of, wow. a lot of stuff and then my nutritionist says uh how's your sleep and i said well Uh, the short version is that I jumped through a second-story window, sleepwalking, and uh, I almost died. And the long version is, it's fine. Um, I just sort of have a bad case of jumping out the windows. Um,
0: but (laughs) obviously, I made a I made a movie about this. This is my first feature. You you know, the first time I heard you was it was This American Life that you were telling that story. Yeah, and um, it was before the movie, and I'd listened to that, and it horrified me. I mean, (laughs) because I had a couple sleepwalking incidents when I was young. And one of the worst ones was when I was staying the night with a friend and we were all kind of crashed out on sleeping bags on the floor. And I wake up to my face planting in the coffee table. And I, I was like sleepwalking and I tripped over a body of someone and the mom heard it and heard me crying. And she came out I remember she gave me some juice and I just had this like giant bruise on my chin like that, you know, but then like, and then it it sort of stopped after that. But then hearing your story, I mean, it was one of the more memorable things that I've heard about that or on, or on this American life. I mean, like it terrified me and it doesn't happen anymore. Is it, is it? Well, it's funny because that's actually, I,
1: in my new show I talk about all these pre-existing conditions right. and how when you hit middle age you know l- you know natural causes starts to become more real and right. seeable you know and yeah. and so I I would be remiss if I didn't mention the sleepwalking but I don't want to lean on it because right. I have a whole show about right. it I don't right. you know if people saw that I right. it's it's this balancing act of like what have people seen already and what Have people? What you know? You have to tell them something, right? If if they've never seen you before. So I say, and I I, this is the new thing I'm working on. I go in 2005. I was diagnosed with REM sleep behavior disorder, which means that because of a dopamine deficiency and a combination of anxiety and sleep deprivation, I sometimes act out my dreams. And the most extreme example was that, like I said, I once jumped through a second story window at a La Quinta Inn. So now, before bed, I turn off the TV. An hour before bed, I take strong medication. I sleep in a sleeping bag. Some of these tactics are logical. Some of them uh, seem silly. But the reason some of it seems silly is that even doctors don't know about the disorder. It was discovered in 1986. Wow. So, so we don't know much about it. More significantly, to answer your question, there's no cure. Wow. A friend of mine said to me recently, yeah, you have that sleepwalking, but it's cured, right? And I go, no. Uh, there is no cure. And he goes, yeah, but you have it under under control. And I say, I'm doing my best, but, you know, I have one or two episodes a year. Wow. Um, but there's no cure. I mean, there, there, but then but I start thinking about it, there aren't that many cures for anything, really. I mean, uh, the obvious ones are like chicken box, measles, polio, but most diseases, thousands of them are at best manageable. Right. But in a certain sense, we're all in the same boat because death has no cure and life is manageable. And so I got the sleepwalking thing, but we all have
0: death. (laughs) That's true. That is so true. That's great.
1: So the thing that we end on is uh, working it out for a cause, and it's basically if you choose a nonprofit, I'm going to donate to them, and then I'm going to link them in the show
0: notes and encourage the listeners to do that as well. Right. So uh, my friends, uh, Chelsea Luger and Thosh Collins, have a a nonprofit called Welfare Culture, and it is welfareculture.com. Uh, there 's a lot of health issues with uh, native youth and in our communities and, and adults as well and type 2 diabetes is is big yeah. and their uh, welfare culture is a holistic approach to health sort of mind body spirit movement, and food and things like that and you know they travel around to reservations and and uh, give seminars whether it 's through movement or, or exercise or Cooking and all of this, and it's really just trying to, sort of going back to an indigenous uh, teachings of food and, and wellness, and and encouraging uh, native people to you know better themselves through that. That's amazing. Well, I'm going to contribute
1: to them. We're going to link to them in the show notes. I, I think it. that's a phenomenal cause, and it's something that you tip your hat to, right, in the show, in right. the show, because there's like a there's an event
0: for fighting type 2 diabetes and then uh,
1: the person they book is a rapper who has a song about fried bread right
0: right it's like the the viral song is about the the worst like (laughs) food that you should not be eating if you have diabetes (laughs) yeah exactly
1: well it's, it's uh yeah it's an honor talking to you and uh, this is this has been a blast this is I congratulations I can't wait to see Scott. what you do next Thank I, mean, I want to see your next your next films the next seasons of reservation dogs I'm, I'm thrilled I'm, I'm, I'm on board for
0: every all of it thanks a lot man working it out because it's not done working it out because there's no
1: that's going to do it for another episode of Working It Out. That was a Sterling Harjo. Uh, you, you got to watch that series. Uh, it, is, it is called Reservation Dogs. Uh, I found it on Hulu. You can find it on FX. And just, uh, I just can't wait to see what he makes next. Just such a fascinating artist. Um, Thanks again for listening. Our producers are myself, along with Peter Salamone and Joseph Perbiglia, consulting producer Seth Barish, sound mix by Kate Belinsky, sound recordist, Parker Lyons, associate producer Mabel Lewis. Thanks to my consigliere Mike Berkowitz, as well as Barissa Hurwitz and Josh Upfall. Special thanks to Jack Antonoff and Bleachers for their music. As always, a very special thanks to my wife, the poet J-Hope Stein. Our book, which is called The New One, is in your local bookstore, hopefully in the window. As always, a special thanks to my daughter Una who created a radio fort of pillows. Thanks most of all to you who have listened. Tell your friends, even tell your enemies. Put your differences aside. We're working it out. See you next time, everybody.